0: Welcome to the Filling the Pale podcast. I'm Greg Ashman, and with me for this episode is David C. Geary, the Curator's Distinguished Professor and Thomas Jefferson Fellow in the Department of Psychological Sciences at the University of Missouri. Welcome, Dave. Yeah, thank you, Greg. Thanks Thanks for inviting me. appreciate it. Well, I've been very much looking forward to this um, for reasons that hopefully will become apparent as we talk. Okay, so okay. if the audience are familiar with your work, it will be due to your... Uh, evolutionary theory of educational psychology, I in imagining, but before we get into that, uh, can you tell me a little bit about your background? So how did you start out? You've got a very eclectic uh, biography, I noticed when researching the the podcast, and how did it lead to grappling with issues relevant to education? Right, Um, so yeah, I I try to keep busy. So do
1: a number of different things, as we might talk about later. But um, yeah, after I finished my undergraduate degree, Um, I actually was interested in animal learning, but uh, the program I wanted to go to was closed. And so I wound up doing a master's degree in clinical child and school psychology and um, worked in uh, schools as an intern for a couple of years and got a lot of experience with that. And so that's how I got interested in kind of educational and learning issues generally. Um, Then I went. Get get my PhD at uh, UC Riverside, and was interested in just um, cognitive development, neuropsych development, hemispheric types of things, and got interested in evolution there when I was taking breadth requirements and comparative psych and uh, physiological um, psychology, but didn't really do much with it in terms of mer- merging those together for about you know another ten years or so, or eight years,
0: and. The, the key thing is the merging together of those two strands, isn't it? Um, so, I mean, I, I read in your, there's a little, there's a nice, you wrote a piece for Quillette um, late last year, and there's a nice little section where you talk about um, ancient Mesopotamians and um, and how uh, the ability to read and write in literacy might have been uh, an evolutionary advantage Um to those guys, but there weren't enough of them and there hasn't been enough time essentially for, for, for that to, to embed as a as something shaping evolution. Would I be right to sort of characterize it that way? Yeah, yeah, I I, I think so. I, I got into this
1: um, in the 90s, started to think about this in the early 90s because it was fads going around whole language where kids would just learn language and literacy by immersing them in books and, you know, giving exposure to those. Um, And the assumption was that, as you know, they would learn it in the same way that they've learned natural language. Um, And then the similar sort of thing was going on with mathematics. And I was involved with the um, California math standards on and off, I I guess that was a bit later, but but there was, um, you know, I knew that something wasn't right about this approach. And I didn't quite figure it out. But during the time, I I was reading as much as I could in in evolution um, and getting, you know, a background on that. Then, um, you know, I had a daughter in, um, I don't know, second grade at that time or so. when We we were doing math night and I go there and there were nice nice puzzles puzzles, uh, actual math content and what they were doing. And I was frustrated with that as well. So there was a number of kind of just frustrations that something's not right about how, uh, about this educational approach. And then kind of independently, I was doing the math stuff. And then I um, went to to a lecture by one of our alumni, um, a guy named Lieberman, who did language and language evolution. And he was talking about language evolution and just kind of mentioned reading He said, Oh, that's just secondary to language. And I thought, that's it. That's the difference um, between an evolved competency, such as language and something that um, is uh, culturally specific that can build upon evolved systems, but requires a lot of schooling, a lot of practice, a lot of things that kids don't naturally do themselves. And and that's where I come up with that primary, uh, secondary distinction, primary being the evolved systems and secondary being the School-taught system that are kind of built on top of those,
0: and I want to get into that. But you you just mentioned the um, the the California math standards, so you're probably aware of the, <laughs> uh, the 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 discussion going on again about a review of the the math standards in California. There's been a big petition and all that sort of stuff. Yeah. So what goes around comes around. Right,
1: right. Um, yeah, I, I I participated in help with that in the late 90s, but declined to be involved after that. It, yeah, it, it turns out to be you know, it should be a straightforward sort of thing, but it becomes very political. And I just
0: it's just not my thing. <laughs> no, no, it certainly is very political. So um, you've, you've, you've got into it a little bit. So what is the what is the 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 basic dis- distinction between biologically primary and biologically secondary knowledge, and how, uh, if, you, if you identified a skill or, or, or a capability uh, that, that humans have, how could you tell um, sort of objectively whether it was primary or secondary?
1: Right, so the uh, primary abilities are um, universal. You know, they're found across human, uh, uh, human cultures. They do not require formal schooling, although they often do require certain types of experiences that kids will generate automatically as they engage with their friends or explore the the environment or whatever it is uh, they are doing. They generally fall into domains of folk psychology, you know, language, reading facial expressions, theory of mind, uh, having knowledge about yourself and breaking people up into in groups and out groups, all of those sorts of things that we're familiar with. These are universal. Um, they emerge early in development. You don't have to go to school to learn them. Uh, There's systems for folk biology, um, learning about plants and animals in your environment, and folk physics for navigating, dealing with tools and so forth. So all of those are universal. They're um, emerge early in development. Uh, the kids' uh, self-initiated activities, facilitate their development and adapting them to the, uh, you know, whatever context they're in. However, if we look at things like reading, writing, mathematics, a number of other other, uh, things, science, they're not universal. Um, They're historically very recent, you know, science is just a few hundred years, Um, historically uh, very recent and require uh some formal typically formal academic training or schooling um, for them to emerge in the absence of that they don't emerge
0: so you talk a little bit about uh in your quillette piece about newton's principia and and he huh? and, and what he said uh he says what's he say um i do not define space um place and motion as being well known to all only i must mm-hmm. observe that the vulgar conceive those quantities under no other notions, but from the relation they bear to sensible objects. Yeah, I, I thought that
1: was a great quote. I, I was actually um, reading through that once because I was curious about how he did it um, and came upon, upon that quote and laughed. It's, uh, it's perfect. Yeah, so the uh, vulgar understand things like physical motion based on um, you know their observations and there are certain biases so if you think something is turning in a particular way and it kind of goes off a ramp, you know, many people think it's going to continue to turn in a, you know, in a, a circle or whatever it is rather than you know go in whatever direction it was when it was left the the ramp. So so that's would be folk physics. in um, the vulgar of us, yeah, you me know, included. You know that's how we navigate in the world. That's how we understand how objects can be used as tools and, and so forth. Um, he went beyond that. He used uh, geometry, proofs, uh, mathematics to say that well, we can explicitly understand you know the motion of bodies and and how that um, how that works explicitly, not just by observation. And we can show that certain um, intuitive beliefs of the vulgar. Really don't fit. Yeah,
0: and so in order to come to that, um, you have to, and this is different to to, to reading. Like physics is worse in mm-hmm. that sense, isn't it? Because you well, have it's to way worse. You have yeah. to replace these these folk ideas that you have that are primary mm-hmm. with these uh, quite counterintuitive um, biologically secondary ideas. Right. Right, yeah, and and
1: there, there's been studies on that with with folk physics, also folk biology and other things. And you don't really replace them so much as you develop another. You have a scientific understanding yeah. of your biology or evolution or physical motion or whatever it is or people, and then you have and then you maintain your your intuitive folk notions as well. So you don't, you have to suppress. The um, the folk notions in order to do well on the, the formal academic physics or biology is
0: this um th- this is uh, Stella Olson's um, resubsumption theory is it uh, is that one of the so where you, you you create a new theory and then the new theory in certain circumstances outcompetes the old theory is, is that one of the, the the things you're referring to
1: yeah
0: yeah it it's re- uh, related to that a number. of people have uh, come up
1: with that idea and, and actually studied the co-occurrence of these intuitive ideas and the academic ideas and um, they do compete with one another. And if you become very skilled in a particular area, then the academic knowledge, you know, if you become a physicist, becomes kind of the automatic way of understanding things. Uh, if you don't have that much experience, then the folk intuitive stuff kind of dominates.
0: Um, I was reading an article in The Australian, which is w- one of our newspapers here, um, by Michael Brooks, and it was a a, a, um, a section from a book uh, that he's written. I, I don't know Michael Brooks, but I was quite taken with the article because he describes the Piraha, I don't know if I said they're right, people of the Amazon who only have a concept of numbers of one, two, three or more. So he, he, mm-hmm. he talks of lining batteries up, uh, on the ground in front of uh, them, and then they had to do the same and match the number. And they could do it for one, two, and three. But after that, it all became a bit approximate. So would would it would that suggest that understanding one, two, three, or more is a kind of primary um, response that we need to navigate the world? But then after that, uh, we're into the terrain of um, the biologically secondary.
1: Yeah, yeah, that that's a great question. And a lot of lot of work going on there, not not only in traditional cultures, but with infants and preschool kids. And, and there is something called an approximate number system, which gives uh people, kids, or lots of other animals a general sense of relative quantity. There's more here versus more here, more food here versus here, or if you're uh you know a group of shoaling fish, you go to the bigger shoal because it's less predation risk and, and so forth. So you get these um, kind of approximate sorts of things, but getting exact magnitude is, is difficult. Um, probably you can do it, as you said, for one, two, and three. Um, but once you get beyond that, you have to have a conceptual understanding that number words match onto quantity. So four represents four th- any, things of any kind, and that each successive number word equals one more so forth so that's a a cardinal principle knowledge Um, getting that requires actually takes several years for kids and seems to require some type of um, parental uh, tuition or um, getting it in school it's not something that comes easily to kids or adults in traditional society
0: yeah so when we're talking about schooling I suppose we all think of the traditional schoolhouse and the kids sat in the teacher, but I suppose in in some cultures, like you would, some of these secondary skills would be taught by parents or or, or governors or something in in the home. So it, it's more the the process of of having a, a formal process of education rather than any particular kind of building or structure.
1: Right, right. Yeah, yeah. You you don't necessarily need a you know. Fifty, you know, a traditional schoolroom, but but if you look at kids in traditional contexts, um, they don't get a lot of direct formal instruction from their parents. Um, you know, in some cultures, they may get some direct instruction on how to navigate, you know, from one island to the next using currents or or stars or whatever it is, uh, and there will be a lot of folklore stories and so forth that give uh, you know, moral rules or uh, whatever useful information to kids but the types of things that we think of with schooling where you know you're learning you know number and then arithmetic and you know radical and so forth and you're going up um, that that's much less common and, and kids are really on their own there's a lot of observational learning a lot of learning from older kids and a lot of the learning is things that kind of are part of primary systems, you know, learning to hunt, for example.
0: Um, you, you reminded me of uh, a sort of maxim from cognitive psychology that, that, that narrative is privileged and you talk about traditional cultures uh, using stories. Uh, is, mm-hmm. uh, could we say that narrative maybe is a sort of natural, um, biologically primary way of, of teaching even, like if we're getting a bit mm-hmm. meta?
1: Sure. Yeah, I I think so. I, I think that um, you know there is a cross generational transmission of knowledge. Some of it is through observation, maybe a little bit of a direct, you know, do this or that sort of thing. But there's also a lot of stories about ancestors and about um, you know uh, like like fairy tales that that we teach kids. There there's usually some um, nugget of truth or morality or. Some useful information in the context of these. And, and yeah, I, I think that's exactly how people transmit um, culture from one generation to the next. Stories won't get
0: you algebra, though. I mean, no, that's the problem. The problem. That, that's the main problem. Um, yeah. So one of the things that you mentioned is when you were actually first thinking about this, that the yeah. idea that, that, that secondary knowledge um, kind of requires primary knowledge. So they're not completely disconnected, different baskets, different things. And I Mm -hmm. find that a lot of people sort of, when they hear this idea, they imagine we're talking about two completely separate things. Um, Mm -hmm. But a a, a good, um, the sort of question that I would get asked, for instance, so um, my my daughter's a a keen runner. And so Mm -hmm. she um, uh, you know, wants to do well at running. Um, And clearly running I'm not even sure whether it's a a primary skill because I'm not sure we have to learn it so much as it's just instinctive but then Mm -hmm. you get to um a point uh if you want to be a professional runner where you engage a coach who does something very similar or looks a lot like direct instruction so how Mm -hmm. how, what does that say about running is it is it primary is it secondary is there bits of both
1: yeah I I I think it's basically primary i mean because running i mean you see that that's what kids do all over the world um but the notion of competing uh you know in a modern society for track or i i i assume track sorts of things you get kind of an arms race where you know a hundred years ago, you didn't need a lot of coaching and it was the upper class that had nothing better to do. They would engage in the running and competing. Um, <clears throat> but now it's like any little bit of an edge could make the difference between winning and, and losing. So it becomes extremely competitive. And now you can build in ergonomics, human factor, and other types of things to kind of push that primary skill, you know, beyond, you know, to its upper limit. in in ways you probably wouldn't need to do in most other contexts.
0: So it's like a little bit of a secondary layer on something that is basically biologically primary. Yeah, I think so. Um, When I talk about um, your theory in blogs and on Twitter, and and we'll we'll talk about why I refer to it and and, uh, the connection to cognitive load uh, theory Mm -hmm. later, because that's what I research and that's why um, I find myself talking about your theory. I get a number of criticisms uh, from people. A, a lot of people um, I actually react quite strongly against uh, this idea. Um, and I'm sure you've encountered this if given sure. that this yeah. is your area, uh, yeah. So can we just address yeah. some of them? And apologies if you're listening and I don't. Yeah, let's do that. Apologies to the audience if you're listening and there's a, a criticism that I haven't thought of uh, that you wanted me to put. But let's have a look at some. So. Uh, one of the things that I'm told is actually that you have said um and I don't know where it is from, but this is this is raised often that you have said that your uh, theory is not yet developed to the point where it has implications for education. now, can you remember saying that and is it true well um yeah i,
1: I you know i have there's there's two two sides to this yeah um the one side I probably did say things like that because yeah. I, I was concerned that this would become a fad yeah and a not a very well done fad not integrated with empirical work and so forth and, and you know how it is in education you get a fad and it doesn't work as the way you expect and then it gets dropped and that's it so yeah. i didn't want that to happen yeah on the other hand um I think that it has clear educational implications, as as I've said as well. Um, the difference, you know, to take an easy one between uh, whole language and um, teaching, you know, phonetic-based decoding and, you know, uh, you know, word fluency and strategies for text comprehension and so forth. Those are all secondary instructional types of things. If we had This type of framework in place um, 30 years ago, we never would have even considered something like whole language. You know, and let you know a generation or so of kids go through early language development and basically um, learn nothing. I mean, some will pick it up, but uh, you know, it's it was a disaster, I'm sure, for a lot of kids. Because they they now read more po- poorly than they would
0: otherwise read. Yeah, and it, it's because it's based on the the people of and since oh, Dewey and and people before him, um, there's quite a lot. I mean, it's hard to to know where these ideas go back to, but a lot of people have observed. Yeah, people have observed. Oh, but t- children learn there their mother tongue with no direct instruction. Surely if we that's just right. surround kids with books, they'll learn to read. Right. Yeah, and that's right. the sort of whole language theory, slightly, um, I'm right. sure whole language theorists would disagree with the way I've characterised it, but that's right. kind of like the skinny. Right, right. Yeah, I, I mean, and it's certainly,
1: I mean, kids are amazing. They, they learn language, they learn to read. Uh, read minds, so to speak, they learn to navigate, play with tools, all sorts of things. Um, And it's amazing, but, but they're pre-wired to learn these things, uh, given, and they need appropriate experiences during development for these skills to be fully developed, but it, but it's pre-wired. But if we look historically, as, as you mentioned earlier, formal education is maybe 5,000 or so years old. And even then it was only a small slice of the population. that that received any trading in reading, writing, and um, arithmetic. And even then, it was uh, Roman numeral or uh, related sorts of things, so not even that useful. Um, And universal literacy, you know, a few hundred years in Europe, depending on exactly where you're at, maybe three or 400, depending on where you're at. And in many places in the world, many people aren't literate. Um, but they know all sorts of things. they can deal with people, they can find the way around they're very skilled in many ways um but they're not reading and writing
0: yeah, so um the the other yeah, and I think that that's probably it almost sort of leads into my my next uh, criticism uh which is and this is one that's leveled at i mean i think some people are just skeptical. Uh, about the whole endeavour of evolutionary psychology writ large. And and one of the things that's leveled at that is it's just, it's unfalsifiable. So we're just looking at the way things are now, and we're trying to sort of, we work backwards to um, what we think, you know, uh, and and we can't really do experiments or test those hypotheses. So what's your sort of counter to that?
1: Well, in, in, um, In evolutionary psych generally, there is, um, you know, evolution u- human behaviors an empirical journal. There are different theories about, life history development, you know, kind of what it means and whether it's useful for understanding variation in people's development, like, you know, how quickly they, they mature when they get married, you know, when they first reproduce and so forth. Um, make choices, lots of empirical data on that showing universals um, human universals as well as things that vary across cultures um you know there there's a lot of data on status and reproductive success and lots of uh societies so so that's uh, that, that, that's false there, there there are a number of journals that publish uh em- empirical studies and there are um, repeating ideas within evolutionary science, which are are tested um, against these.
0: Yeah, I think the, the way I see it, I don't know if this is a good analogy. Um, uh, It's it's like saying that astronomy is not empirical because you can't do experiments with the stars or astrophysics right. or something. But of course, it's not based, it's not an experimental science. It's an observational one.
1: Right. Right. Yeah, yeah it, it it's trying to understand reality. And with evolution, you have all sorts of techniques. You have comparative cross-species techniques that are used. You have cross-cultural techniques. For humans, you know, you can do internet across societies, or you can look at traditional societies. You can do psychological or behavioral economic experiments. Uh, All all of these sorts of things are are done and are published in very good very good journals
0: okay so i'll come to my, my third criticism then, and this is one i sure. get often from early years teachers and what they say mm-hmm. is um that uh, it's false that you don't need to teach biologically primary skills because they claim that they spend a lot of time teaching things like socialization so they'll spend a lot of time teaching little kids how to behave in the classroom how to take turns how to share objects and all this sort of stuff
1: Right. Yeah. 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 That, that's a great question. Um, and classrooms are biologically secondary. And if you, uh, there, there are anthropologists who study kids and have looked at kids' behavior across cultures and, um, they don't do anything like classroom setting behavior. And so, I'm not surprised. You have to socialize kids to behave appropriately with their peers in a classroom setting and in classroom settings if they're going to to learn anything because you're not going to see that in in a traditional context. And so, yeah, I mean, kids have to be socialized to behave appropriately in context A versus context B. And you see that in a traditional um, context, but mostly through observational learning. But now we've got this weird classroom setting, and it requires some additional effort on the adult's part to get kids behave in ways they wouldn't normally behave.
0: I suppose it's quite weird to have so many uh, children of the same age in the same place, whereas in traditional Mm -hmm. societies, I imagine, there'd be more of a mix of children and adults. And although the children would probably play play with each other to a certain extent, they wouldn't do so in groups of 30, perhaps. Yeah, yeah, yeah,
1: so the um, same age altogether is unusual in, in traditional context, you know, there'd be a fair number of kids around, but they'll all be mixed ages. And so the older, you know, the eight-year-olds are playing with the five-year-olds and so forth. The five-year-olds are watching the eight-year-olds and copying, uh, modeling uh, some of what they're doing with observational learning and so forth. So the the mixed age stuff is, is uh, more common traditional content that, that doesn't necessarily mean that mixed age is better in classrooms i mean that's an empirical question right yeah but it it is different yeah.
0: so um the the way i came to um biology to primary and secondary um knowledge and that distinction knowledge skills capabilities whatever however we want to uh, describe them is um uh, i, I Got very interested in cognitive load theory. I started doing mm-hmm. a, a PhD um, with uh, John Sweller as one of my PhD supervisors, Slava Kalyuga the other, and John mm-hmm. um, brought in uh, this brought in this distinction. So, cognitive load theory. I'll just I'll just expand a little bit for the um, the audience. Cognitive load theory has been around since the 80s, but mm-hmm. your theory has been incorporated into it um, more recently than that. And it's, mm-hmm. it's done so because um, what John and his colleagues were finding was that the optimal ways of teaching things and typically with with John's research, it started out with little algebra problems. So mm-hmm. the most um, effective way of teaching those things was through uh, worked examples, explicit teaching. Um, right. And this conflicted in many people's minds with this natural idea, or this well, natural idea, I know, obvious idea that that we learn better through immersion and he couldn't square that because clearly we do learn some things through immersion then your idea comes along and says well actually there's two categories here and the things we learn easily through immersion are biologically primary and the things that we need this explicit instruction for um and it, it could be that we learn biologically secondary things through immersion it, it could that could have been an empirical finding but the fact that we find, that different methods um, suit different types of knowledge uh, is is not a contradiction now, because they are different types. So it could be that this method is better for this type and this method is better for that. So what are your, um, so essentially, now your theory has become um, foundational really to cognitive load theory. Although it wasn't there in the 80s at the, the very start, it's sort of the first thing you have to think about before you start yeah. building these other bits in. So, what are your thoughts on that? And and are you how familiar are you with with sort of John and cognitive load theory and that sort of thing?
1: Oh yeah, I'm I'm, I'm a big fan of John uh and, and his work in, in cognitive load theory, and it, and it fits very nicely. Um, yeah, one of the books I wrote was Origin of Mind looking yep. at brain and cognitive evolution and intelligence. And um, I kind of get to it toward the end there about how we use, uh, and the argument is things like working memory, intelligence and so forth, is uh, evolved as a means to develop, to cope with variation and change within a lifetime. So if you have a completely set inherent system then you're well adapted to a very narrow range of things. Um, But if you deal with, but you need a system to deal with variation, you know, and people deal, uh, people of all over the world, different climates, different social groups, different social densities, different types of relationships between. So so there has to be some level of plasticity and learning there. and so I argued that that these systems evolved to deal with novelty uh, change and so forth. And that um, that is why they are, well, that is one reason why we can learn and generate secondary sorts of things because we evolve systems that are plastic and can think about things in different ways, in new ways, in novel ways. You can look at a, um, you know uh stones or other objects and think about mentally how they might be used as objects for example you're not stuck with just one thing which is where where most primates and and other other animals are they're just kind of stuck they can do this but that's it but in any case so the uh, fluid intelligence working memory executive and so forth for for dealing with these sorts of things. But they all set up a system eventually that allowed us to um, generate uh, writing systems, uh, mathematics and so forth. And um, I've argued or proposed that the same systems that were involved in certain people generating these systems and working memory executive control are going to be necessary for the learning of that same knowledge and so with um, going back to the the folk physics sort of thing so so you're looking at motion and trajectory how things move so you know how things actually move in the real world versus how intuitively you think they move to fully understand actual movement you have to suppress the folk biases you know that's part of Inhibition, you know, working memory is is in there, and, and the this whole cognitive system um, is part of that. You know, kind of kind of knock out your intuitive biases and try to explicitly understand things in a different, novel way. And so it, so I've argued um, even even before I was actually that aware of cognitive load theory that that we're working memory and fluid IQ are um, critical to biologically secondary learning, and then it, you know, it, it turns out that the cognitive load research actually fits very nicely with that prediction.
0: Okay, so um, yeah, so that that's that's interesting. You sort of prefigured it um, in terms of what you predicted um, the, the the cognitive systems that would be necessary. In learning biologically secondary information, and then cognitive load theory comes along and says, actually, uh, these these cognitive systems, working memory, etc., are absolutely critical in learning this class of information. So the two things kind of tied up quite well.
1: Right. Right. Yeah, and, and and there's a lot of empirical research. I'm I'm aware of the math learning stuff and executive functions early on, working memory, are are, are critical to um, gains math skills secondary math skills from one year to the next i mean your prior knowledge is important as well but but these domain general systems are, are critically important
0: because we still have i mean i know i will avoid the politics of it all but we've had um you, you've got the obviously california are reviewing their math standards again but we've got uh, in australia um which you're probably not aware of but we are um reviewing our curriculum the entire thing um maths english okay. the whole mm-hmm. thing and um i've been quite active um in the area of the review of the science and the maths curriculum because um mm-hmm. the the draft that they've put forward um emphasizes in maths um problem solving and learning how to solve problems um mm-hmm. and emphasizes in um science inquiry learning learning through investigating things which again a little bit of that is sort of the the end point of where we're trying yeah. to get in a sequence of instruction. But learning right. through problem solving or learning through investigating seems to me to to go back to this misconception that we learn best through immersion, um, and sets aside what we know about um, uh, about the need for explicit teaching. Right. Right.
1: Yeah. Yeah. So I think. There's always the search in education, it seems, for a magic bullet that's going to jump kids ahead and get them at this sophisticated, conceptual understanding of mathematics or the scientific method or whatever it might be. Um, unfortunately, that magic bullet doesn't exist. You have to kind of start from the beginning and build a solid foundation. It's like you were saying with your daughter, with running. with just Doing it on her own, she can get so far, but to move beyond that level, she needs to explicitly change certain things um, that she's doing and has to practice and train a different way than than she would otherwise do. Uh, Nobody seems to have any problem with that in sports. You know, in football here in the US, know, American football, they talk about repetitions and practice and practice and practice. and, And nobody argues with that because it, it works. I mean, and if, if it's necessary for something like football or soccer or whatever it is, it's gotta be even more necessary for, for something as abstract as mathematics and science. You just, you know, kids need to learn how to problem solve. They need to be able to use mathematical knowledge to solve word problems and to think about everyday sorts of things to mathematize it, so to speak. But, but you can't jump from just knowing a little bit of arithmetic to um, complex problem solving. It just, well, as as you know, it, it just doesn't work. There's too many holes in their knowledge. And, um, you know, if they have to, if they don't have things automatized, you know, they have their math facts memorized, their procedures memorized. And when they're solving the problems, they have to think about, they have to count on their fingers or do whatever it is. Which eats up a lot of working memory, which undermines their ability to actually problem
0: solve oh, yes. I wonder whether I wonder whether we, we accept it in sport because we can actually see physically see what people are doing in a sporting um, environment. whereas when when it comes to solving math equations, it, a lot of it's going on in the head. now I, I, right. I think one of the actual key uh, techniques of teaching is to make that a bit visible. So in my classroom, um, kids will w- work on many whiteboards, they'll hold up each step as they go and so on. But generally speaking, s- solving problems is is going on in the head. And because um, we can't see it like we can see someone jumping over a high jump or kicking a football, mm-hmm. we mysticize it a little bit more. I don't know, is there, is there yeah. possibly some potential in that?
1: Yeah, yeah. So you you can't see it. I mean, so you, you can see how, you know, how, how somebody's uh, jumping or running and, and it's easy to correct. Um, but with the cognitive stuff, you get the output, you know, how long it takes, what kind of errors they make, you know, whether they get it correct or not. And so the degrees of freedom in terms of inferring what's going on in there is a lot larger, sure. as you said. And so.
0: So we tend to instead we tend to just jump to expert performance and say, well, expert performance looks like this. So this is what right. we need to get students doing. Right, yeah. right. Yeah, I, I
1: I, I think that's exactly right. They, they want to jump them up as fast as possible to expert performance so they can have all these applied problem solving skills, as you said. Um, and they you know, don't understand. Well, even with football players or runners or whatever, they've been doing this probably for years, starting with little league, you know, when they're little kids and doing whatever it is. So, so they've been learning all along. And then when they get to be adolescents, some of them are pretty good and stick with it. Um, so I think people forget that, um, or, or don't think of it. I don't know.
0: Now, um, I mentioned already um and I wanted to get into this at this point your your Quillette piece, um which right. you wrote i think it was last November i think um and um it it was you were concerned i i believe uh, it comes right. across in the article you're concerned about the impact of um of of lockdown and the measures mm-hmm. that lockdown um we taken because of lockdown they impacted on education right and right. how this might affect things. would you just like to basically talk us through uh that a little bit what your concerns are around how lockdown might have affected students
1: right so if if we think you know if if we make this distinction if if you you give us that as a primary some things that kids learn pretty easily automatically other things they're not going to learn unless they have some type of structured environment and curriculum and so forth and that um these skills take many years to develop and we actually know they backslide over the summer, uh, and you have to practice and stay engaged with it. And then with the lockdowns, you know, kids are isolated, and you know, there, there are probably some social anxiety and other effects on them, but they're also losing a lot of academic time. That not only are they learning less than they would normally learn during an academic year. They're also probably having a lot of backslide. Now, some parents who are sophisticated, um, have access to tutors or whatever it is, can compensate for that. Other parents, you know, they're working, they don't have internet access or whatever, aren't going to be able to compensate for that. And if the kids aren't engaging with this material, they're just not going to get it. It's not going to happen or, and, and they're going to, going to move backwards so educational disparities are going to increase i think a lot of i would imagine a lot of adolescents who are kind of you know am i going to stay in school am i going to drop out you know kind of on the margins there i think we're going to lose a lot of those those adolescents they're just not going to go back because it's going to be even harder now to go back because they have to make up what they missed or what they the the ground they lost by not being as engaged academically and learn this new material, so it, you know it's. Um, I think it's going to be a big issue, especially for the, for the lower achieving kids and kids who don't have parents who can kind of really make up for what they've lost.
0: Because economic activity, uh, I mean, let's set set aside. Um, the, you know the 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 rewards of uh, uh, an education, the sort of. Um, cultural mm-hmm. rewards, the ability to go and appreciate uh, different kinds of music or, or literature or whatever. But just mm-hmm. in terms of the economics, our uh, societies in the US, Australia, the UK, places like that, they are really built around these biologically secondary skills now. Right. Um, so if, if the students are missing out on them, um, missing out on school, missing out on developing <clears throat> those skills, there's a problem.
1: Oh, yeah. Yeah. It, it, it's a big problem. in and- terms of uh, employability later on, you know, kids with poor reading and poor math skills are more likely to be unemployed or sporadically employed, uh, lower wages, the ability to um, move up to become a manager. For example, you have to have some organization, you have, to have some math skills, you have to figure out how many hours, and you know, you just have to have some basic skills. So all of that is going to be compromised for, a lot of kids, so it's a, you know, it's a long-term, potentially lifelong economic issue, and then just dealing with everyday things like, you know, you have medication, understanding how often to take it. You know, taking it four times a day doesn't mean you take it all four in the morning. You take one every six hours, or, you know, just things that a lot of people would just take for granted. There are a lot of folks who aren't very numerate which can be 20% of the population or so, who don't understand these things and they you know, their lives are um, compromised.
0: So we've talked this, I'm coming up to my final question, which is similar to the, the, yeah. the question I, I ask a lot of my um, mm-hmm. guests, mm-hmm. but I'm going to sort of frame it a little bit around, we've talked about um, whole language and Uh, how that was a bit of a disaster. Mm -hmm. Um, We've talked about also, um, well, I've alluded to, I don't think I've said it explicitly, the the cyclical nature, you you mentioned fans, the cyclical nature of what happens in education, where, you know, now, uh, we're rewriting our curriculum in Australia with putting these ideas back in. So I suppose, and this is a difficult question. (laughs) How do we we get out of all this? How, How do we um stop the cycle get off the merry-go-round and actually start to build a more uh, substantively based approach to education
1: yeah that that is a great question and there's lots of, of components to it um, i think you know obviously empirical having a scientific basis uh, to things you know doing experiments like john and, and folks like you do looking at worked examples um, reducing working memory load trying different types of intervention um, or instructional approaches obviously um, you need to have that uh, i think um, i think having this evolutionary framework is uh, potentially very useful because one it gets you to stop thinking about using folk intuitive ideas you know your intuitive idea is People like to socialize and be socially immersed in things. And they learn this way. And they like to discover things on their own because that's what little kids do. And they do, it's absolutely true. Um, and if you don't have this distinction, you make the reasonable assumption that, well, you know, that's, uh, this is how it's gonna work in school as well. But if you say, well, you know, all of these things are historically very recent in an evolutionary perspective and the, um, <clears throat> The desire for universal high levels of education is really very, very recent—you know, 150 years—or depending on what, what country you're in. Um, and we cannot assume that kids have the cognitive kind of pre-preparation for that to occur early for them. And we also cannot assume that they're going to be motivated to learn mathematics or you know, literature or whatever, in the same way they're motivated to hang out with their friends and, you know, play or whatever it is um, they're doing. And and so we, we would stop all the intuitive assumptions about immersion and inquiry reading and say, well, you know, if it's secondary, then we can't make any of these assumptions because at the limit, we know nothing about what would be important other than what one, they need to be explicitly told the content because they're not going to discover it on their own. And two, we know that working memory demands are going to be important. The instructional stuff needs to take this into, into um, consideration and that we need to start you know, with phonemic awareness, word decoding, basic sorts of skills early on, number counting, arithmetic, in math, uh, and so forth. But a lot of the secondary stuff becomes empirical questions. So like okay, what works best for kids with a lot of working memory versus less working memory or a lot of prior knowledge versus not as much prior knowledge and, and, and these are all testable in classroom or lab settings.
0: So so we need to and... no go on. Yeah and you know
1: and I, you know I, there, there has to be a mindset that there is we can't make all these assumptions. we can't run a field, based on our experiences, our intuitive understanding or observations or whatever it is. A lot, the field is basically run on folk intuitions. Yeah, You know, the same intuitions that people would get in a traditional society about how kids learn and do things, taking it and putting it, transferring it to classrooms. (laughs) And it, it just doesn't work for most kids most of the
0: time. So we need to get out there. Uh, we need to tell people um, about this distinction so that they can, they've they got a tool for thinking about why right. um, natural right. forms of learning um, are yeah. different to what happens in, in the classroom and, right. um, and models of motivation and everything that goes with it.
1: Right. Right. Yeah. And, and the assumption that kids are going to be naturally motivated to learn mathematics or whatever just makes no sense. I mean, a few people might find it interesting after they've get, gotten into it and they figure out they're pretty good at it um, but mo- most kids are going to be less motivated to learn it than they need to learn it so you just can't rely on uh internal motivation
0: great well thank you very much um dave i really appreciated this chat. I'm, I'm thinking the audience will be very interested uh to listen to That's this good. one so thank you for your time good. today um, and maybe we'll, you, we'll, we'll chat again. Sure, sure.
1: Anytime. I, I, I enjoyed it and I appreciate the chance to, uh, to talk. Thank you.